Have you ever gotten some bad advice ever in your life? Uh, I'm certainly sure I've not given any bad advice ever, but uh, I have gotten plenty of bad advice. No, I'm just kidding. I've probably given some bad advice as well. So what, what do you do with that? You're not really sure it's bad advice until you enact that which you received. And when you put it into practice, you realize as you're putting it into practice, it's bad advice. Take, for example, the husband who uh, needed some marital advice. So he went to a, a, a counselor, a therapist, and uh, he paid his money and went in and sat down for a whole hour and, and described to the therapist the fact that he needed some help being a little more assertive in his relationship with his wife. Are you ready for this? <clears throat> he needed to be a little more assertive in his relationship with his wife. The therapist, after listening to the man for almost an hour in that session, said, you don't have to let your wife henpeck you to death, man. Go home and show her you are the boss. Good advice or bad advice? Of course, following the session, the husband takes the doctor's advice. He rushes home, slams the door, shakes his fist in his wife's face, and growls. From now on, you're taking orders from me. I want my supper right now, and when you get it on the table, go upstairs and lay out my best clothes. Tonight, I'm going out with the boys, and you're going to stay home where you belong. And another thing. You don't know, do you know from now on who's going to comb my hair, adjust my pants, and then tie my bow tie? I certainly do, she said sort of quietly. And just who do you think that's going to be, he demands. She said rather calmly, the undertaker. <laughs> you know, I think I have heard many times passages of Scripture pretty much uh, uh, you know, where they have sought to describe for us how to take advantage of the armor that God has given us. And, and to be quite honest with you, some of the advice that they've given us has not been really quite useful. They describe a lot of things, talk about a lot of things, but you don't really, uh, you don't really go home with really something to utilize, something to put into practice, something that you can use. Uh, simply to describe the armor and to talk about its validity and its importance and, and all of those things is, is, is really well and it's good and, and I think it has its place. But there has to be something sort of that you have to take home with you in which you can use in order to put into practice. And so we're going to do that today and we're going to talk about each aspect of the armor that God has given us in the next couple of Sundays and single them out because I think they're that important. I sought uh, early on this week to try to cram them, you know, a couple together in one, in one study and, and, and I I think that you guys are probably tired of hearing 55 to 75 minute sermons from me, right? And <clears throat> thank you for that vote of confidence. But anyway, and so I know that our time is limited. And so in order to do each of these justice, we're going to sort of sit back and, and examine each one one at a time. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be here a long time. So buckle up, here we go. All right. And we have identified last week, as we saw Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, the reality is that we are actually on a battlefield we're not on a playground this is not a playground that we're on it's a battlefield and the reason why it's a battlefield is because of the stakes and the stakes are high they are the souls of the men and women and boys and girls who desperately need to know Christ but more importantly that it's a battle for the family as well for we saw last week when when Satan made his attack upon the creation of God he first attacked the marriage between Adam and Eve, and then later attack the family between two brothers. And he has been since that time attacking not only the individual, but I'm convinced he is attacking the family because he knows 
how valuable the family unit is, the relationship between husband and wife and parents and children and children to children, that he is seeking to do everything that he can to wreak havoc in the family today. And it's important that we stand strong. And in standing strong, we trust the truth that God has given us. There is a truth that God has equipped us with as a part of the armor that is important for us to consider because it is this truth, as we stand on that truth, we actually stand strong against those things that Satan is going to come against us, not just individually, but he's going to come against our marriages, he's going to come against our relationship with our children, our children in relationship to their parents, and so forth. And it's important that we understand that this truth has been given for the valuable and insightful purpose of not only educating educating us and teaching us what they are, but to utilize these weapons, to utilize this armor that he has given us to the maximum yield or the maximum effectiveness that God intends for us to have. And so I want to take a look at this passage quickly this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. We're going to see how truth strengthens my stand against the enemy. How does truth strengthen my stand against the enemy? Now, before we get to some practical things, I want to give us some definitions about what he's describing for us here. First of all, he uses the word stand. The word stand is a command. It is a command to endure. It is a command that we are to endure. In other words, we are not to to buckle or to coward or to run, but we are to basically stake our claim, sort of create a spot where God has placed us, and we are to stand, we are to endure, we are to withstand. And notice in the definition that I gave you, when the conflict or the battle begins, face the opposition and withstand the enemy's attacks with courage. Notice the word when. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. The enemy is not going to leave you alone. You can't hide in an obscure place. You can't put yourself in a, in a secret spot or a spiritual place or hide on some mountaintop experience where you are immune to the enemy. He is going to find you. He is seeking you out, and he will do everything he can not only to devour and destroy you individually, but also your family. And so it's not a matter of when, it's a matter of Yes, it will happen, because when it happens, you will know that it is happening, and opposition will come, and you must take your stand with courage, with valor, and stand in the strength of the Lord. For standing against the enemy with the truth begins at the beginning of the struggle, or the outcome will not go well for you in the long run. It's the very beginning of the armor that he's describing. It's not by accident that he describes truth as the first weapon, the first part of the armor that we are to continue to utilize in our defense and in our offense against the enemy. And if we somehow fail to utilize this to its maximum yield in the effectiveness that God gave us to use it with, we will fail in all the others. Because I'm convinced truth is that significant. It is that important. And it's for that reason, I think, that he mentions it first. And I think it's, it's more than likely the downfall of many people today is the reality that truth is not really all that important. But truth is that important. And I think it hinges on the other aspects of the armor because we're going to see that it envelops, it secures the rest of the armor that the soldier is wearing. So he says, therefore... Stand. Notice the stand is before the therefore, and the therefore is a conjunction that sort of leaks 
links what he has just said and what he's about to say. Stand therefore, because the enemy who, is, who, who God has just revealed to us is an enemy that is out to throw us for a loop. He is out to make our lives a havoc. He is out to destroy us. He is coming against us so that, that as we take our stand, he can destroy us. So stand therefore, as a result of how the enemy is coming against you, you must therefore stand in this manner. There is no other method, no other way you can make your stance against the enemy unless you stand this way. You must stand this way. There's no alternative. There's, there's no B plan. There's no other way. There's no other method. There is no other thing that God has equipped us, enabled us, or given us by which we can take our stand against the enemy. It's stand with these things that he's given you or you will not stand. And so he says, stand therefore, and then he describes the word truth. The word truth is a huge word, and we must understand what he's describing in the word truth if we don't understand anything at all. For truth is a reference to the substance of what is actually true. It is a reference toward the subject for that which is actually true. In other words, it's the divine omniscient truth of God. God is omniscient, and he is, his wisdom is omniscient, and what he gives us is unending, never-ending Wisdom and his wisdom, his beginning and the end, is totally and completely true. Everything that he says from beginning to end is totally true and totally trustworthy. And this truth starts with the Word of God. It's where it starts. It starts with what we hold in our hand called the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. You know the song, the B-I-B-L-E. And so it stands for the Bible, the Word of God, as revealed, though, in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the Bible, the Word of God, as revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. For you see, truth is not just something written on a page. Truth is also a person, and his name is Jesus. He said in John 14, 1, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so Jesus is not only a manifestation of the word, the word that became flesh now dwells within us. And so then we see that truth is the person of Jesus Christ himself. It's also an attitude here conveyed in this text, an attitude of candor, sincerity, and truthfulness that results in action. If truth wasn't something that transformed our lives and transposed into how we live, then therefore it would not be truth at all. For truth, in effect, affects how we live. For we live according to the truth, to the reality that we have in our minds and to what we believe to be true. So if, if I believe something to be true, then therefore it's going to affect how I live. It's going to be a characteristic in which I'm going to practice. And this practice is one in which we avoid deceit and it removes all pretense. It removes all disguise of the reality and in my relationship with others. It's something that is honest, that is humble, that is forthright, and that conveys this idea of openness to that reality which is truth. It comes without any prejudice without any practice of deceit and it removes all hypocrisy and is willing to admit you know what I need this truth that you're revealing to me and I'm open to this truth and I once receive it I will not try to hide from the truth or to be deceptive in regard to the truth the reality that I've received but I'll seek to live it out of my life so there is truth it is divine omniscient absolute truth from God so we have the truth that is both positional and practical. 
What do I mean by positional and practical? As I mentioned earlier, it is positional because once I come to faith and trust in Christ, I am positioned in Jesus, and in Christ now I am positioned in and on truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish and have everlasting life. We all know that passage. But before you can get to the love, you have to get to what? I'm a sinner. How do you know that you're a sinner? Romans 3.23 says the, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do I know I'm a sinner? From the truth that is revealed, not only in the word of God, but through the person of Jesus Christ. Truth is revealed to me. I realize and recognize I am a sinner. And then I recognize and realize that because of my sin, the wage of that sin is death. Once I realize I'm a sinner and the wage or what I rightly deserve because of that sin is death, separation from God. The end result then is to do what? Is to place my faith and trust in him. How do I realize and recognize that Christ is the answer to my sin? Truth is revealed to me then that Jesus is the solution. Then John 3.16 comes into play where the Spirit of God takes the truth of God and reveals to me that the truth is actually found in the person of Christ. And once I place my faith and trust in the person of Christ, then the gospel contained in the person of Christ then becomes true to me, and it is upon that truth, the truth of the gospel, that I am anchored, that I am centered, that I am grounded on from my life thereafter. So positionally, I am positioned in the righteousness of Christ that comes from the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. But yet, just positionally is not enough and not sufficient for truth to have its ultimate reality in my life. I must also practice the truth. I must conform and then adjust the passions of my heart and the thoughts of my mind that need to be anchored and centered in the truth of God. In other words, I conform and adjust the passions of my heart and the thoughts of my mind with the attitudes and the actions that reflect the truth that I now say I believe in. There are a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus, but it doesn't result in an outward manifestation of their attitudes or their actions. And so truth has to then have a reflection a result in which it then causes me through being transformed by that truth to then live out that truth as a reality in my day-to-day -day life. So by accepting, applying, and actively living out truth, I become equipped and empowered for spiritual warfare. In other words, those who don't accept the truth, apply the truth, and actively live out that truth are going to be powerless against the enemy. It's one thing to accept it. I accept God's infinite, absolute truth as the reality of my life. That's great and that's good. But accepting it alone is not going to be sufficient. Well, then I apply it, okay? I study it, and, and as I'm reading it, then all of a sudden God reveals in my life or my life is not in line with that truth. And then in the application of that, I then recognize and realize I'm not living out the reality of this truth in my day-to-day -day life, and I make those adjustments and I live out, according to that, the activity of that truth in my day-to-day -day life. And here I then become empowered, equipped, and enabled to engage in spiritual warfare. And I am then victorious as a result of the impact truth not only has on me positionally, but what it does for me practically. So there's truth. 
I hope you're as confused as I am. Are you? Everybody as confused as I am? Good. Here we go. Let's give us some practical aspects about how truth impacts our life. How does it strengthen my stand? First of all, it encourages me. The truth that we have just described encourages me. Notice the text in verse 14. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. I have it fastened around me. When did we receive this truth? At salvation. When I saw the truth of my condition, I saw the truth about the person of Jesus Christ, I saw the truth about the gospel, and I placed my faith and trust in that truth, I then at that moment became clothed with the armor that God has given me at the moment of my conversion with all the armor necessary to engage the enemy. We're about to have a game here in just a little bit. Do you know what game we're having? Huh? What game's going on, guys? Here in just a little bit, an NFL game? The Chiefs are playing who? The Steelers. Why am I interested in that? My nephew is their kicker, right? Single-handedly, I think he beat you guys last year with, what, six field goals. What can I say? I thought about wearing his jersey today, but uh, since they're having a kneeling problem on the flag, I thought maybe I shouldn't. But anyway, um, that, boy, that was a side trip, wasn't it? When we join God's team, whether it's the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Kansas City Braves, uh, Chiefs, sorry. (laughs) Still missing the Braves, what can I say? All right, the Kansas City Chiefs. Let's say that God's team is the Kansas City Chiefs, okay, since we live in Kansas, right? When we join that team, what uniform do we wear? You walk out on the field with what? You're wearing a uniform with the pads and the equipment to engage in the adversary. When we come to faith in Christ, we are instantly clothed with this beautiful thing, this armor called the first element is truth. He puts it on us. We are to leave it on us at all times. We are not to discard it, but we are to leave it on at all times as we go out onto the battlefield, not the football field, but the battlefield and engage the enemy. We are clothed with this thing called truth. Did you know that Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, was also likewise clothed with truth? Notice in Isaiah eleven five, it said, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and truthfulness or faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Christ had victory over the enemy. Why? Because he was, as our example, one who was clothed in truth and was faithful to the truth. And as we, like him, are clothed with truth and we are faithful to that truth, his victory becomes our victory. How do we know that? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we have a beautiful example of Jesus who, after being baptized by John the Baptist, was out in the wilderness, right? For 40 days and 40 nights, the enemy came, tempted him three times, and each time, how did he confront or combat the enemy? With what? With Scripture, with the Bible, with the Word of God. Was it the Word of God? Yes, but more than that, it was the truth that was contained in the Word of God. 
The word of God contains God's truth. And it was that truth that Jesus not only quoted, but it was the truth that he stood on in the heat of the battle, in the moment of, of the most desperate temptation he could have gone. He'd been 40 days without food. Some of you are already hungry right now, and it's been, what, 45 minutes since you were in life group and you ate a donut or something. Can you imagine 40 days and 40 nights? And at his lowest point physically, the enemy came. And the only way that he could overcome the temptation of the enemy is with the truth that he was clothed with in the faithfulness to that truth in using it to combat the enemy. And because of that, he was victorious. I don't know about you, but it's really assuring to me to know that what brought him victory also brings me victory and you victory. And to know that when I position myself in that victory and I practically lived out that truth in the reality of my own life by not only believing in it, but by acting upon that truth, I can defeat the enemy every time, every time. That encourages me. I hope it encourages you. Number two, it empowers me as well. Notice, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. That word having fastened is fascinating. And you get all kinds of scholars and, and Bible teachers and commentators. They sort of, sort of, you know, they talk about what the Romans used to wear and all of that. And they seem to be a little bit, you know, one guy says this and one guy says that. So you kind of don't really know where to land. And I really don't care about all what the Roman used to wear. All I care is about the application, what it means to us. And I don't know about you, but when I see having fastened on the belt of truth, what is that fastened, having fastened? I'm already fastened, meaning it is wrapped around me for security, for strength. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty good that I had a belt on because it makes me feel real secure up here. Right? It holds everything up. I mean, it, it keeps things in place. And aren't you thankful? I said, aren't you thankful? That's what I thought. So... It, it, it is something that secures me. It's something that anchors me. And the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Christ in this truth, helps secure my faith. It helps strengthen me. It helps me be ready to be strong, to be secure in that truth when the enemy comes. I don't have to worry anymore. I'm anchored and I'm equipped with truth and the power that that truth has. We saw it in 6.1, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not that you may be in that it is a question, but the reality is that this belt will help you stand. It will empower you to stand. 6.13 says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. How do we stand firm? How can we withstand the enemy by being buckled or being secured by this incredible readiness that comes from truth? Truth empowers me against the enemy. Let's take a, a quick example to uh, Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bible not on the screen, but Genesis 3. We're going to read this quickly. Genesis 3, a familiar story to probably everyone in here unless you're new to Christianity. Or you're not a Christian. And that's okay. We all had to start somewhere. And I just started last week, so join me in, in my newness in Christianity. So... Uh, Genesis chapter 3, interesting passage. Notice what happens as I read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. 
How's it described the enemy right off the bat in Genesis 3? Crafty. We've already seen that, haven't we, in Ephesians 6? He's a sly little devil, isn't he? He doesn't always appear as if he projects. In other words, he's filled with camouflage and deceit and trickery and schemes. He presents one thing and he's something else. You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's the devil. He's crafty. He's sneaky. He's sly. He's underhanded. He's a liar. He's a liar. There's no truth in him at all. He's crafty. He's a liar. And he said to the woman, now, just in case, guys, you're feeling a little bit pretty confident, keep in mind that we've already mentioned this many times before, Adam was standing right next to her (laughs) the whole time. He didn't go anywhere without her, and she didn't go anywhere without him. They were together when this happened. They were not separated. And the Lord, he said, uh, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman, not sure why the man didn't speak up, Well, we know why. Women speak more words than men do, right? Sorry. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the direction was away from God, the deception that took place, because they were deceived, desire welled up in their heart. There was then a decision to defy the reality or the truth that God had given them. They disobeyed God, and the end result was defeat. Were they equipped with sufficient in order to say no to the temptation of Satan? Absolutely. They were equipped with truth. God said you can eat of any tree in the garden and not this one. They had all that was necessary to say no to the enemy, and yet, in spite of their knowledge of knowing what God had said, they deliberately chose to disobey God. They were empowered, they were equipped, they were enabled by the truth that God had given them to resist the temptation of the devil, and they did not use that truth. And I'm convinced the reason why many today are not empowered over the enemy is because they themselves are deceived by the enemy. They deliberately make a decision to contradict the truth that God gave them, and as a result of that, they are defeated in their walk with Christ, if not their lives without Christ, because of the enemy's deceit. We can be empowered, for we have been empowered, because we as Christians have the person of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ within us, and we are then positioned in truth in the person of Christ, and we have what we call the Word of God and the Spirit of God who enables us and empowers us to know the will of God and to say no to whatever the enemy throws at us. Number three, it equips me for battle. It not only encourages me and empowers me, but equips me for battle. In other words, once I keep it on, I've got to utilize it. (laughs) 
I mean, it's one thing to be positioned in Christ and, and, and to have, you know, this, this, this knowledge of, of, of truth. And I know there may be some of you out there saying, well, you know, is, is truth really truth? And what is really true? And, and there's a whole argument out there that says, you know, truth is, is relative. You ever heard anybody say that? It's relative. In other words, they'll say, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And so I'm not to judge you, you're not to judge me, because this is truth to me and that's true to you. Really? For someone who makes that statement, say there's no absolute truth, that in of itself is an absolute truth, and they're being hypocrites. Seriously, think about it. For any t- anybody to tell you there, there's no moral absolutes and there's no absolutes at all, you know, no absolute truth, that in of itself is an absolute truth. They're saying there is no truth. Well, if you're saying there is no truth, then you're saying that's true. So you're being hypocritical. And for those who say that what's true to you is true to you and what's true to me is true to me, really, let me go to your house before you, leave, before you get there and let me rob you of all your stuff. I'm going to take everything you got, pack it in my truck, and take off. And you're going to say, well, you can't do that. Well, my truth is your stuff is my stuff. That's my reality. And how can you tell me that my reality is not my reality? I know you don't see my truth as my truth, but that's my truth, so I'm going to live in my truth. You want to stretch it a little further? There are people today who, 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 who identify themselves in a different reality. They were made men, but in their reality, they think they are women. Is that true? Just because I think that reality to be true doesn't necessarily make me true, make it true. I can believe I'm a, a, a truck all day long and stand in my truck and say, I'm a truck, I'm a truck, I'm a truck, I'm a truck. But does that make me a truck? Because I believe I'm a truck and I'm standing in my garage. Doesn't make me a truck. There is a reality that has been defined, and that reality has been defined by God as true. And God's truth is that reality that we must accept. And because you see that reality equips me, and you say, well, how can I know the truth? God wants you to know the truth. He has fastened you in Christ with the truth. He's equipped you with the knowledge of his will to know what is true and what is not true. Ephesians 1, 8 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, what? His purpose, which he set forth in Christ. He made known to us the mystery of his will. You want to know what's true? Look to him. Ask him. Let the Spirit of God reveal that to you. Interesting, it says in Ephesians 5, 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We can understand and know what the will of the Lord is. If we, if we seek it, we will find it. If we knock, the door will be open. If we, if we ask, he will give it. Interesting that there are basically four realities I'm going to talk about in equipping us with truth. Very quickly, it equips me to defeat doubt. It equips me to defeat doubt. Is there anybody in here ever, other than me, ever doubted your salvation? Anybody? Come on. Let me see a hand. Raise it real high. Be proud. Come on, don't be bashful. Any here, anybody ever wondered? You look in the mirror and you go, that's not Christian. You ever thought that? And if I was a Christian, I wouldn't be acting this way. I've been thinking this way. I wouldn't be feeling these. This is not Christianity. And we begin to wonder and Satan comes and says, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Look at your life. It doesn't reflect Jesus. And we doubt. 
Notice what it says in Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of what? Of truth. The gospel of your salvation and believed in him. You heard the truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. You're saved. And you believed in him, Jesus. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I could preach a week on that, but for time's sake, that says to me that the truth is I'm saved. Was it Mark Lowry Friday night? A couple of you were there with me. Laugh like I've never laughed in a long time. Tears running down my cheeks. I was one of the youngest people there. I'll tell you something. Were you there? You know what I'm talking about. And uh, he, he made an interesting comment. You know, he, he talked a lot about being Baptist. And he talked about the Pentecostals who really aren't secure in their salvation and Baptists who really are. It's kind of interesting. He was in a Christian church. And most Christian churches don't believe in eternal security. And he made a comment. He said, a lot of times people think that God is, is, is a God who has with one hand a piece of chalk and another hand an eraser. So he writes your name on, on a piece of chalk and then he erases it. God doesn't write your name on a chalkboard with a piece of chalk when you're saved. He writes it in the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt on Calvary's cross. And it can never be erased. Never be erased. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I preached on that Friday morning here, didn't I? At your father-in-law's funeral. For by grace you are saved through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. It is not based upon what I do, it's based upon what has already been done. I don't have to do anything anymore. And I don't care what Satan whispers in my ear when I look in the mirror and see my flaws and my weaknesses and my sins and maybe some other Christians may condemn me and condone me and shake their finger at me, these self-righteous, pious Christians trying to convince me that I'm not living up to their standard. Well, guess what? Neither are they living up to God's standard. And if they would open their eyes and look in the mirror and see the reality of their own condition, they would have to say, it ain't my brother, it ain't my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer because they themselves are as heathen as the rest of us. And there's nothing that I can do or fail to do that can cause me to lose my salvation. Nothing. Number two, not only defeat doubt, but it equips me to defend against deceit. You ever been deceived by someone? Have you ever been deceived by someone? Ephesians 4.14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It talks about children, doesn't it? But many of us are immature in our faith and we don't really understand or know enough truth to be able to defend ourselves against deceit. And I think it's your responsibility to study truth and to know truth so that when deceit comes, you can recognize it plain and simple. When someone else stands in a place where I'm standing or you turn on your radio and you're driving in your car, you're watching some guy on the television and he says, this is true. And if you know the truth, you can say, that's not true because not everything on your radio or TV is true. And you got to be able to know the truth. And, and there are people who are so mature, they're like, they're just waving from here to there. It's almost like they have no control. 
The, the idea is a passive sort of verb here that says, I'm being tossed to and fro and sort of carried. You ever been in the ocean and the tide has rolled in and how hard it is for you to anchor and not be taken out by the tide? And there are many who don't even combat that. They just let the tide just roll them all out. And they're just so gullible that they take in this, this untruth as truth and they stake their lives on it like eternal security. Somehow someone has convinced them that you can't be safe and always safe. That there's something you must continue to do in order to save yourself. That is a lie straight from hell. We have to be careful what we are tossed to and fro by. Because there are crafty, deceitful schemes. It's interesting that this text says there are people who are intentionally, deliberately seeking to deceive you. Satan is a deceiver, people. He deceived Adam and Eve. He sought to deceive Jesus and didn't succeed. But he will seek to deceive you. And he will use people to try to do that. But rather, it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Constantly, not only wear the truth, but constantly speak the truth. And it's hard to speak the truth, isn't it? Isn't it hard to speak the truth? Especially with someone who's so convinced that they're right. But we must do it. We're commanded to do that. And as we do it, we're to do it in love. Not in condemnation or not to bring about our own personal conviction of their wrongness or to straighten them out or whatever it is, but to do it because we love them enough to speak the truth into their lives so that they might then understand that truth, live out that truth, and enjoy the fruit of that truth. To defeat doubt, to defend against deceit, number four, to deny deceitful depravity. Interesting, he, in Ephesians, notice how all of these are in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.20 says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Verse 21, assuring that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This word here, assuming, is not a question. It is a statement of reality. It is a, a statement of confidence. He's saying, since you have heard about him, Jesus, and were taught in Christ as the truth is found in Jesus to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, what he's saying in a nutshell is simply this, break from your past and live in the present. Break from your past and live in the present. You're, you're no longer living in the past. You have been set free from that. So live in your present. Live in the truth that you received in Jesus at your salvation and practice the reality of that truth by a transformed life because that life transformed you. Live in the present. Don't live in the past. And what that says to me is that if I, can, if I have to be challenged then in my walk with Christ to live in the present and not in the past, does that mean I can live in the past and not in the present? You know anybody who, who you thought and you knew and you watched, they walked an aisle and they prayed a prayer of faith and they saw, you saw some life and some transforming power in their life and they were living for Jesus and all of a sudden one day you woke up and they were living in the past as if they were not saved and, and, and they're not living in the present. Is it possible? How does that happen? Through deceitful desires. 
I hate to tell you something, but once you came to faith in Christ, that doesn't mean the old self totally and completely died, does it? Come on, does it? Don't look pious at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You struggle with him every day. You have thoughts you shouldn't think. You have feelings you shouldn't feel. You look where you shouldn't look. You hear what you shouldn't hear. You think what you shouldn't think. You often go where you shouldn't go. Why do you do that? Because you still struggle with the old man that's in you. You, are, you, you can deceive yourself often and build your own reality by this perception that you are right when all along you're wrong and you can even defend your position and your, your, your perception of where you are and defend it to the hill. But the whole time the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. And we've all lived with family members who have done that and wanting to justify themselves. But the reality is we have all done that in our own self-righteousness. Trying to justify our position as true when the reality we know that is untrue. It is possible for us to even deceive ourselves. And to be honest and to be humble enough to say, you know what? I may not be right. And the battle goes on. Number four, and lastly, it equips us to deliver direction. Uh, there's this aspect of God's direction that truth sort of reveals to us. And notice in, in verse 25, Ephesians 4, still the same, same book. Therefore, having put away falsehood, in other words, you put away the old life, you put away that which you no longer used to live, that, that, that lie that you used to live, you put it aside, that falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for you are members of one another. We need to communicate not only with the lives that we live, that we're living in the truth, but we need to communicate Christ to those who do not know the truth. For unless they possess the person of Jesus Christ through faith in him, they cannot possess truth. And once we possess truth, we need to then practice truth. We need to communicate truth. And that is, in essence, one of the things we do here on Sunday mornings. We do it in life group. We do it here. We constantly challenge ourselves to... to accept truth, to apply truth to my life, and then adjust my life to that reality and live it out, allowing that truth to transform my life, to reflect Jesus, to deliver the direction of God. I, I often, I, I shy away as we close with, with illustrations like this, but I'm going to use it anyway because uh, some of you know me. Um, I grew up in South America, Brazil, uh, as a missionary kid, and I didn't learn some of the, the struggles that went on socially in America. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old. <laughs> and so I went to Brazil when I was eight. So I was a, can, can we just say it was a long time ago, Bob? It's a long time ago. Yeah. And so I missed a lot of the cultural dynamics of the United States. And I didn't grow up like many here in the U.S. And I grew up in a country that didn't have social or struggles like we had here in the United States. I didn't know about them until I came to the States. Didn't know they existed. And so I, I kind of have a different perspective. So I, I kind of shy away from these. I, I'm saying too much about trying to defend this. But uh, I hope you'll take it within the, the context for what I want to say and how I want to use this. But it's about Lincoln and slavery. Let me, let me add as I read this that I don't think anybody should live in slavery, whether it's to man or to sin. 
And I think either one is, is not God's design. But Lincoln is the epitome, I think, of a man who believed and who practiced what he believed to be true. But anyway, here's, having said all that, my email is uh, mmattingly at ibcwetchdaw.com. There's an old story about Abraham Lincoln who went down to the slave block to buy a slave girl. As she looked at the white man bidding on her, she figured he was another white man going to buy her and then abuse her. He won the bid. And as he was walking away with his property, he said, young lady, you are free. She said, what does that mean? He said, I mean you are free. Does that mean, she asked, that I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she asked, that I can be whatever I want to be? Lincoln said, yes, sweetheart, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean, she asked, I can go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. The girl with tears streaming down her face said, then I'll go with you. Why do we follow Jesus? He said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus Christ paid our debt on Calvary's cross. And when we placed our faith and trust in him, he set us free. He said, I will set you free, and when I do, you will be free indeed. I don't know why we think that truth constrains us, it binds us, it cages us, it hinders us. But the reality is that the person of Jesus Christ, who is true, came to set us free. And because we can say whatever we want to say and do whatever we want to do and become what we want to become, we choose to follow him. Why? Not out of requirement really not to earn or to gain our salvation but because we want to follow someone out of love who died for us and through that death has set us free i don't know what truth you're battling today but whatever that is don't buy into the enemy's lie he's a liar not only is the enemy a liar but sometimes you're a liar because sometimes self will say that may be true, but that truth is not a truth that I want to accept. And we somehow convince ourselves that our way is better than God's way. And it's not. For any time we choose other than the person of Jesus Christ, who is truth, we in fact enslave ourselves and rob God of the purpose for which he intended for us to live in him free for you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free let's pray